0: You know, there's nothing that stirs my imagination like the sound of a steam locomotive.
1: That voice, if it's not obvious, is the man in black himself. Mr. John R. Cash, better known as Johnny.
0: That lonesome whistle cutting through the night and that column of black smoke and steam throwing shadows across the land. When I was a boy, the trains ran by my house. And they carried with them a promise that somewhere down the track, anything would be possible. And you know, for some reason, it was awfully important to me that when I waved at the engineer, that he waved back at me.
1: This tape is from a 1981 TV special he made called Riding the Rails, where he guides the viewer on a journey through the history of the American Railroad.
0: The railroads were an important part in the building of America. As a matter of fact, America didn't really begin to grow until the railroads came along. We were a little country with a toe hole just on the east coast and that big, dark wilderness out there waiting, and it was the trains that took us there.
1: As you can hear, Johnny is espousing the standard, nostalgic, almost mythic understanding of the railroad's role in spreading America across the continent. If you know anything about the history of the American West, you've definitely heard this gauzy version of history. The railroad as the harbinger of progress, the great feat of industry that connected the country from sea to shining sea. And there's a lot of truth in that version the arrival of the railroad was the biggest factor in turning the frontier into a bustling territory. And Montana is no exception. Communities lived and died based on where the northern Pacific plotted its next depot as it slowly inched its way through the territory in the 1870s and 80s. And once the line was finally completed, the territory jumped into life in a way that had been impossible before. But there's another side to the coming of the railroad, the darker side, full of corruption and corporate incompetence and environmental destruction. And that side of things gets talked about way less than the nostalgic, mythologized version. But it is way more important and way more impactful on the history and present of Montana and the West.
0: Let's relive it. Riding the rails, riding the rails I hear wheels of steel coming through Pulling cars for passengers like you If you want to take this trip to Paris, free so get on board and ride the rails with me. The
2: rails.
3: Mm-hmm. I'm John Hooks, and I'm Matt Newman, and this is Land Grab.
1: Welcome back to Land grab, Matt here and John here. This is the second episode of our first season, where we're looking at the growth of the Missoula Mercantile Company and the allotment of the Flathead Reservation at the turn of the 20th century in Western Montana. Last episode, we sort of laid the groundwork for the season. We talked about the pre-colonial history of the Salish, Ponderay, and Kootenai tribes and the circumstances that led them to sign the Hellgate Treaty with Washington Territorial Governor Isaac Stevens in 1855. The treaty was ratified in 1859, and it established the Jocko Reservation for the Ponderay in the Kootenai, and a Provisional Reservation in the Bitterroot Valley for the Salish. Meanwhile, a little settlement called Hellgate was just popping
3: up in the Missoula Valley. In this chapter, we're going to look at the days of Montana as a territory and the birth of the corporation that will become the Missoula Mercantile Company. This is just a 25-year period from 1864 to 1889, but it's chock full of really foundational moments in Montana. It all centers around the coming of the railroad in 1881 and the most consequential business deal in Montana history. We're going to start things off this chapter in the late 1860s. Montana is a new territory at this point, and gold discoveries are being made left and right, so there are swarms of prospectors flooding in, looking for their fortune in the riverbanks and the placer mines of the treasure state. To begin the chapter, we're going to introduce you to one of these young prospectors, who is going to grow into the key protagonist in the rest of our story. To kick it all off, Here's our friend, K. Ross Toole.
4: I'm going to be talking, theme, I'm going to be talking about some evil men in this course. These are people with beady little black eyes. This is the devil theory of history and it's a very comfortable theory of history because it's simple. You merely point the finger at the culprit and that solves all the problems. Unhappily it won't work. So do not be surprised if during this course of this course we search and we search for the enemy and at last find him and having done so conclude as conclude as Pogo concluded, we have met the enemy and he is us. And that is precisely what we're going to discover.
3: Chapter two The Big Deal
5: very eager to find out more about your your family. Um, Now a few minutes ago I believe you told me they came to Montana quite early. You want to tell us a little bit about that?
2: Well yes the uh, first relative that came was A.B. Hammond and his uh, brother and they were uh, uh, back in New Brunswick where all of my family was raised.
3: In 1867, a teenager named Andrew B. Hammond stepped off a steamboat in the rough frontier trading post of Fort Benton on the upper Missouri in north central Montana. The journey there had been long and grueling. He and his brother George had left the family in New Brunswick to pursue fortune and adventure in the Montana gold rush.
6: So it's his older brother George that convinces him, hey, let's, you know, that's for the thing, you know, right? Young boys, like, eh, tired of the family farm. Let's, uh, there's gold, right? It's a gold rush, Montana gold rush. And they come out for the, I think they were originally planning to going to Colorado and then that kind of panned out and you know, they got word that, oh, there's a gold rush going on in Montana. So they just hopped on the steamboat and headed up. And uh, he uh, and his brother came
2: uh, to uh, Montana by way of St. Louis and at St. Louis they got a job Uh, cutting cardboard for the uh, riverboat to earn their passage up to Fort
1: Benton. The Missouri was the arterial route for traffic from the east coming into Montana at the time, and it was a dangerous, slow, and even gruesome journey up the river in those days. Red Clouds War, a conflict between the U.S. Army and an alliance of Lakota, Northern Cheyenne, and Northern Arapaho, was being fought along the Bozeman Trail, the most heavily trafficked overland route in the area. And passengers feared attacks by Indian war parties, who resented the boats that brought more and more settlers and prospectors up the river. The whole idea of steamboat travel gets kind of romanticized but it was an extremely destructive way to travel. These boats were super slow and incredibly loud and they were insatiably wood hungry. Steamboat travel fed a whole lumbering industry centered around cutting out entire cottonwood groves up and down the whole length of the Missouri. And the boats polluted the air and the water as they went. Back to Andrew Hammond. He was a rather slight young man, but he was already sturdy from many years of hard manual labor in his family's lumber camps back home in Canada, where he'd worked since he was 15. He had close-cropped, dark brown hair, which he parted in the middle, as was the style of the time, and he had some really formidable eyebrows, from under which peered piercing, steely gray eyes. Short of enough cash to complete his journey, Hammond had to disembark by Fort Peck, as his brother George continued on to Fort Benton. Andrew spent a brutal nine months cutting cordwood for the steamboats, and hunting wolves with poisoned bison meat in order to pay his way up the river. The way that they would hunt wolves uh, at this time is, is just super gnarly. They would shoot a bison, and while the uh, heart was still pumping a little bit and the blood circulating, they would take a little feather or a quill of some kind and blow strychnine into the heart of the bison that would then circulate throughout the corpse. A pack of wolves would come to feed on the bison, eat all this poisoned meat, and then die, and they would just take all of the pelts. In later years, Hammond would repeatedly stress that he thought this was an extremely formative period in which he proved his own rugged, western, can do it to himself.
3: But by the time Andrew Hammond finally arrived in bustling Fort Benton, he'd been on the river for a year. He was understandably a little eager for some recreation and headed to the nearest saloon. Much to his surprise, he found his older brother George waiting in the bar.
1: To set the scene in Fort Benton for you a little bit more, it's your classic frontier boomtown, real Deadwood vibes. In Montana, it's where all the gold is getting shipped out, and where all the new arrivals are shipping in. Most of the people who are coming into the territory at this time were extremely young. We're talking almost entirely teenagers and early 20s, and that includes a lot of Civil War vets. There was even a rather notable ex-Confederate population in Fort Benton, mainly from Missouri, the uh, contested border state at the time. A lot of them just hopped on boats and sailed right on up the river, ended up in Fort Benton. The secessionist attitude in the state probably peaked around then in 1863 and uh, was very likely a motivating factor in Abraham Lincoln making Montana its own territory in order to secure the uh, Union federal control over the gold in the territory. But after the Civil War, I think the most important things to think about, the sort of legacy impacts of uh, Montana's Confederate population, is just that Democratic Party has a kind of outsized influence in Montana politics in the years afterward. Remember that uh, the Democrats were the Southern and Catholic Party post-Civil War, while the Republicans, of course, were the uh, Northern and Protestant Party. And the other thing to bear in mind is the fact that Union and Confederate, Montana is just filled with Civil War veterans, almost all of them extremely traumatized I think you kind of can see the results of that and the sort of rough-and-tumble nature of the West at that point. Fort Benton was even called the bloodiest block in the West around this time, with around three murders a month. It must have been a tremendously exciting place to be an adventurous young buck at the time. And once they were reunited, the brothers spent three months working in lumber camps and sampling the many vices on offer to a couple strapping young 18 and 19 year old lads in the back alleys and the saloons of Fort Benton.
3: After a season in this rambunctious town, Andrew and George finally set out for Last Chance Gulch, looking to strike it big in the gold mines.
6: But they should arrive too late for that. It was the Last Chance Gulch already happened, it was 1868 and so.
3: So they continued west through the brand new town of Missoula and eventually the west coast in Puget Sound, where Andrew worked for Pope and Talbot Lumber Company. After a rather listless 18 months, Andrew moved again, this time back east to meet up with George, who had settled in Missoula. Uh,
6: So he gets the job in the mill, and then George is going back and forth between Montana and Washington, uh, horse trading, and I think um, he, you know, just... Sort of it's like, well, there's got to be something else out there. Again, he's, you know, 17. Yeah. Um, and he sort of drifts back. And there's, again, there's there's a gold strike, another gold strike, actually, which is basically near Superior. Okay. So kind of in that area. And I think that pulls him back. He still thinks he's going to strike gold somewhere.
3: If you remember from the first episode, the first settlement in the Missoula Valley was the little shanty town of Hellgate, founded by, among others, Judge Frank Woody. C.P. Higgins and Frank Warden. Higgins and Warden opened a store in the settlement, which grew rapidly as gold discoveries were made throughout the region.
4: You don't think of uh, the gold rush in Missoula, but you should, because Missoula was here largely because of the Cedar Creek mines, which were up by Superior. But this was a nice place to locate, and Missoula is really a, a, a ghost, a, a boom town, gold boom town.
1: But Hellgate was not a mining town. It was a trading post. The Higgins and Warden store was the center of the entire settlement. It was where all the goods came from and where most of the produce of the valley was sent. The store even functioned as the settlement's de facto bank, accounting for the fact that they had the only
6: safe in the region. Almost all banks... In the Western United States, and during this frontier era, were the merchant, whether it was in was Missoula or Kalispell or Great Falls or Fort Benton, the people that had the money to loan, or Virginia City, right? The only people that had the merchants, the general stores, a had money, b had bookkeeping skills, yeah. and c had a safe. Mm-hmm. So I mean they were they were literally were the banks
1: that safe even attracted attention from henry Plummer's famous innocents gang of road agents Um, if you don't know in the 1860s henry Plummer, who was the sheriff of virginia city started a gang uh, as we just said called the innocents that was essentially just highway robbers they would you know stop carriages or uh lone travelers along the country road and steal all their gold and usually just kill them. And uh, in Virginia City afterwards, a group of vigilantes formed to, uh, you know, extrajudicially round up and hang Henry Plummer and the Innocents. The vigilantes were funded by the territorial governor and close personal friend of Abraham Lincoln, Sidney Edgerton, and they were led by a man uh, who is Edgerton's nephew, Wilbur Fisk Sanders who will come to feature prominently in later events of the show. So remember that name. But uh, some of the Innocence gang, some of the road agents, descended upon Hellgate while they were fleeing the vigilantes. One of the road agents, a man named Cyrus Skinner, essentially commandeered the saloon in Hellgate, spent all of his nights there, but he spent his days in the Higgins and Warden store, sitting on their safe that he intended to rob of its $64,000 in gold dust. Uh, But before he could, the vigilantes showed up from Virginia City and Skinner and his three associates were hanged to death right outside the Higgins and Warden
3: store. But Hellgate collapsed in 1865. Higgins and Warden built a sawmill and a new store at the present site of Missoula a few miles east into the valley, and the whole town packed up and moved with them. It was into this new hamlet of Missoula that Andrew Hammond would arrive in 1871 and settle in. And it was in Missoula that Hammond would find the Western fortune that had thus far eluded him.
2: And then uh, A.B. got out here in Missoula and started the Missoula working field.
1: This is Jack Beckwith. Jack is Andrew Hammond's great-nephew. And we will be hearing more from him throughout the show. He's speaking in this recording in an oral history for the University of Montana.
6: You know, as a historian and as an, especially an environmental historian, I find that that the places themselves are part of the historical record, right? You know, historians do most of their work in the in the archives and frankly that You know, if I look at microfish, I get nauseous. You know, (laughs) the archives were not necessarily where I really enjoyed spending a lot of my time unless it was, you know, 100 degrees out.
1: That voice you've been hearing throughout is Greg Gordon. Greg is the Department Chair of Environmental Studies at Gonzaga, and he went and wrote the book on Andrew Hammond. It's called Money Does Grow on Trees, A.B. Hammond and the Age of the Lumber Baron.
6: And so... What I found that was really, I think, it really informed the book, even though it's it hard to sort of trace it as source material, but I think it really helped convey sort of the setting and the what what was the unveiled, um, if you will, sort of the surroundings and what was really going on by um, going to places uh, <clears throat> like New Brunswick um, in Canada. And... There was a lot of sort of serendipitous things. Like I'd be, I was driving, I remember driving down the road in New Brunswick and there was this little tiny town and it had like a little museum and it was about the size, it was about the size of the bedroom I'm sitting in right now. And it was open like whenever the guy happened to be there and he happened to be there. and I started talking to him and he had all this stuff. (laughs) about the Hammond family and New Brunswick logging and he just talked my ear off and he had tons of you know stuff you know and that was what was really interesting is I i ended up with not necessarily the sort of the traditional archives because there wasn't much Hammond stuff in the there um but places like that that somebody had it almost is like people have been waiting for years and decades to hand this off to somebody. So for example, I inherited, I, was with, I think the third person to try to write this book, I inherited people's files. I have two full size file cabinets in my basement that are filled with previous researchers. They're just like, here, take it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Greg's our go-to guy on all things Andrew B. Hammond, and you'll hear him throughout the show.
6: Um, and so it was just sort of that kind of thing, there's just these serendipitous things about just going to these places and trying to get a sense of really what they were like um, walking around Missoula and sort of looking at, like thinking about, okay, Missoula, 1880, what's going on? Mm
5: -hmm.
6: What does this place look like? And some of the buildings are still there, which is cool.
3: At the same time Hammond was settling in Missoula, The Salish on the provisional reservation in the Bitterroot Valley faced increasing pressure from a growing settler population of more than 700 white families who had moved into the area. Remember that when the Hellgate Treaty was signed, it stipulated that a survey of the Bitterroot had to be done to determine who was best suited to stay there, the Salish or white settlers. Part of that stipulation included a moratorium on all white settlement in the Bitterroot until the survey was complete, and a decision made about the valley's future. But the survey was never done, and after a few settlers moved into the valley, it became clear the government had no intention of enforcing the treaty, and more and more settlers flooded in.
1: The Salish also had to react to a profound shift in relations with the U.S. federal government under President Ulysses S. Grant. The Civil War had caused a huge expansion in the size of Union military forces and after the war ended, let's just say that all the people who had been making loads of money supplying the burgeoning military industrial complex were not keen to see that cash cow shrink too much. The federal occupation of the South during Reconstruction usefully occupied a lot of forces, but it was the resumption of the western frontier after the war that really provided a lot of work for scarred old Civil War legends like Philip Sheridan and Otis Howard a few more years on the payroll. From the Canadian to the Mexican border and all the way to the Pacific, the Union Army divided the West into districts and sent troops in to take over for the settler militias that had thus far handled the military enforcement of American expansion on the frontier. A direct result of this was the so-called Indian Wars. The Indian Wars were, except for a few notable exceptions,
4: You do remember George Armstrong Custer. It was a great victory for white people.
1: In any event... The Indian Wars were, essentially, extermination and forced removal campaigns, designed to break the will of resistant tribes. But, as the U.S. is still continuing to learn on a regular cycle, large-scale military conflict against indigenous guerrilla forces is a recipe for expensive quagmire. So by the time Grant assumed the mantle of Commander-in-Chief, the Indian Wars had become prohibitively expensive.
4: Grant was a, an awfully bad president, but he was a very good general. <clears throat> when he became president, he looked around... Uh... The whole conflict between Indian and white, and asked the Secretary of the Interior and the Commissioner of Indian Affairs to study this continuous warfare. The Commissioner of Indian Affairs wrote a report, which the Secretary of the Interior approved and sent it on to Grant, and I'd like to quote from it: It would seem that the cost price of Indian slain in the Florida War, in the Sioux War, 1852 to 1854. And the late Cheyenne War has been on a fair average about a million each. And if our Indian troubles are to be ended by exterminating the race, it is evident at the present rate of one Indian killed per month that the achievement will be completed at the end of exactly 25,000 years. And if each dead Indian is to cost the same hereafter as heretofore, the precise sum total we will have to expend is $300 billion to complete the extermination. But besides the cost to the Treasury, it is found by actual comparison that the slaying of every Indian costs us the lives of 25 whites, so that the extermination process must bring about the slaughter of 7,500,000 of our own people. The Secretary of the Interior put a little P.S. on this thing and said, I think it's still demonstrably clear That as a mere question of pecuniary economy, it will be cheaper to feed every adult Indian now living, even to sleepy surfeiting, during his natural life, than it would be to carry on a general Indian war for another single year."
3: As K. Ross said there, the Secretary of Interior is saying that it would have been actually cheaper for the government to provide all the basic needs of every indigenous person than to continue with its current military practice. The government already did have to maintain some financial obligations to the tribes, which it had incurred in the treaty-making process. For example, Hellgate Treaty provided for construction of a sawmill, church, and school, provision of doctors, carpenters, and a blacksmith, and a supply of rations. But the government was almost always delinquent meeting these obligations. Whatever money did arrive was usually held in the trust. A thing about these trusts, which will feature prominently later in the show, is that they were essentially business accounts for whatever government Indian agent was supervising the reservation at the time. And tribal members would complain for decades that they were almost never informed of what was going on with these trusts and had no idea how much money was coming in or being taken out. And the thing is, this is the U.S.
1: government we're talking about here. So they're not just going to cut military spending to better fund public services. Instead, The real goal was just to stop spending any money on indigenous people at all. To cut the military spending and the social spending. This is the real impetus behind the change from a military conquest or extermination strategy into what came to be called the assimilation strategy. The government was also desperately trying to offload the millions and millions of acres of land that it had acquired as it expanded across the continent in the previous 70 years. And the shared solution to both of these problems was a classically American one. The government would simply step aside and shed any of its responsibility, handing control over to private industry and the sacred marketplace.
4: The marketplace. The sacred marketplace. From the beginning, An eastern-oriented Congress, not an eastern-oriented Congress, an eastern-controlled Congress, an urban-controlled Congress, has passed legislation. Various federal bureaus have implemented legislation pertaining to the West, with particular emphasis on Montana, in blind and utter ignorance of the nature of our land. They're still doing it, and they'll continue to do it until we stop them. Let me give you an example. If you pick up a textbook in American history which is older than about 20 years, they will, therein you will see that one of the most magnificent pieces of legislation ever passed by the Congress was the Homestead Act of 1862, wherein Thomas Jefferson's small human farmer was given free of charge. hundred and sixty acres, free. Think of that. All you had to do was file on it and spend a little time on it and improve it a little bit. It was one of the most devastating pieces of legislation ever to emerge, as far as the West was concerned. It is perfectly true that 160 acres of land was an economic unit in Kentucky, Virginia, Illinois, Wisconsin, Minnesota, you name it. But once you cross the 98th meridian, you are in semi-arid country, and what the hell can you do with 160 acres of land? You can run three cows, and that's about it. But Congress has over and over and over again done this to us. They're still doing it to us.
3: Let me give you an example. In 1864, Congress dumped 46 million acres of land grants off on railroad companies to entice them to build transcontinental lines to the Pacific. In Montana, an insane 16% of the state went into the hands of the Northern Pacific Railroad and to free themselves from tribal obligations, the U.S. Congress then abolished any further treaty making with indigenous nations in 1871. This didn't invalidate previous treaties, but it did signal a formal change government policy that dealt a significant blow to tribal sovereignty. More than anything, this legislation paved the way for Congress to make unilateral decisions for the tribal nations without negotiating any kind of consent from the tribes. In a further cost-cutting measure, The government then moved to place social and administrative control of reservations into the hands of religious missionary organizations. The missionaries then took up the mantle of civilizing indigenous people. Also in 1871, after being sent a petition from white Bitterroot settlers, President Grant issued a proclamation that the Bitterroot was more suited to white settlement than indigenous use.
5: After the treaty the Hellgate Treaty in 1855 in the Hellgate Treaty there is a provision for the survey of another reservation because Victor who was a principal leader at that time had no intention of moving from the Bitterroot Valley and so the survey of the Bitterroot was supposed to be done it was promised and guaranteed in in the Hellgate Treaty but it, it was never really really done
3: Despite never having seen the territory firsthand or having done the treaty-mandated survey, Grant ordered the Salish leave their Aboriginal homeland and move north to the Jocko Reservation.
5: And so Victor died, I believe, in 1872. And so then his son, um, who people are more familiar with and referred to as Chief Charlotte, um, became the principal leader of the Bitterroot Salish.
3: In 1872, Grant dispatched future president James A. Garfield to the valley to negotiate the removal. Arlie and Adolph, two of the Salish chiefs, and a small group of families agreed to sell their Bitterroot lands and move up north after Garfield promised them $50,000 to go. But Charlo, the hereditary Salish chief, and his band refused to leave or sign the agreement. Charlo even produced the original copy of the Hellgate Treaty, signed by his father Victor, as proof to his people's claim to the valley. Garfield's lone negotiation tactics were to
1: attempt bribery and then threaten Charlo and the Salish with military action if they did not sign. Still, Charlotte refused, and even said that he would kill himself rather than sign.
5: He stayed. He knew his father never intended um, to leave, and that was a solemn obligation. And and when uh, James Garfield was sent out to convince him to move, he, you know, he had no intention and he was unwilling. And then Garfield produced a document in Washington, D.C. that supposedly had his mark on it as if he said, OK, I'll gather everybody together and we'll move now.
1: Unperturbed by his own failure to negotiate and his government's failure to abide by its own legal agreements, Garfield simply forged Charlo's mark on a copy of the agreement he sent for ratification to the Senate, an act that enraged Charlo and branded him and his followers as treaty breakers. In uh, correspondences of the time, Garfield explains his actions and the forgery. He says, in carrying out the terms of the contract made with the chiefs of the Flathead's for removing that tribe to this reservation, being the Jaguar Reservation, I have concluded after full consultation to proceed with the work in the same manner as though Charlo, first chief, had signed the contract. I do this in the belief that when he sees the work going forward, he will conclude to come here with the other chiefs and then keep the tribe unbroken.
6: The removal
3: agreement, called an agreement, was to essentially get the Salish out of the Bidroot to the, what by the treaty was referred to as the Jocko Reservation, or as we call it today, the Flathead Reservation. And it never
4: occurred. Charlotte didn't want to move his people.
1: Those voices you heard there were Dan Decker and Julie Kajoon, both of whom we heard in the last episode.
3: The situation in the Bitterroot Valley was complicated after that, to say the least. The Bitterroot wasn't mineral-rich, but it had extremely productive timber and agricultural lands, and was drawing more and more settlers. Charlotte's Salish Band was now left in a precarious position, where the government refused to recognize them as an acknowledged tribe. In the eyes of the government, this meant they weren't entitled to receive treaty provision or rations. Nor were they recognized as American citizens, They were left to fend for themselves as they fought to hold on to their homelands. Peter O'Nan, who became Flathead Indian agent in 1873, wrote in A History of the Tribe that the publication of the Garfield Agreement with Charlo's forged mark "...created the impression that all trouble was over with the Indians, and a large white emigration poured into the Bitterroot Valley. The result is that the Indians who adhered to Charlo are yet in the valley, miserably poor, and surrounded by whites who are anxious with their removal.
1: We are going to take a little break here, but when we come back, we're going to pick up with Andrew B. Hammond, who, when we last left him, had settled in the new town of Missoula, gotten a job as a store clerk for a man named George White, and had changed his name to fit the style of the time, and was now going by his first two initials calling himself A.B. But young A.B. was an ambitious man, and he would not stay a simple store clerk for long. A new age was inching closer to Montana with each new tie set into the Northern Pacific Railroad. And although Hammond didn't know it yet, he figured to play a pivotal role in finally ushering that new age in. See you after the break. Land Grab is supported by ParentingMontana.org. Here in Montana, we want the same things for our kids. We want them to be confident, respectful, and make healthy choices. To grow these skills, I've been
2: using tools and a process I learned from ParentingMontana.org.
3: The website has information for me about my children at every age for dealing with chores, stress,
2: and routines. ParentingMontana.org provides me with a way to build the skills they need to be successful.
1: ParentingMontana.org, Tools for Your Child's Success. Brought to you by DPHHS and funded in part by SAMHSA. Landgrab is proud to be part of the Montana Mint Podcast Network. Be sure to check out the Montana Mint's other shows, which include Montana Murders, Notorious and Unsolved, which I hosted with author Brian D'Ambrosio. In that show, we dig into some of the most interesting murder mysteries in Montana history. They also have the Grizz Fan Podcast, the number one podcast this side of Montana, Focused on all things Grizz football. The Montana Mint Sports Pod is a weekly show focused on all things Big Sky Conference, and the Montana Trivia Championship is a game show devoted entirely to our great state. You can get all of these shows on all of your major podcast apps, and you can check out the Montana Mint on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more. Hey there, land grab listener. John here. I just wanted to hop on and remind y'all that Land Grab is supported by listener donations. Our friends at The Montana Mint help us publish and publicize the show, but the production is really just mad and I. We got a really great response after we put out our first episode, and we're really grateful to everybody that chipped in and helped us realize this first season. We want to keep making Land Grab as long as there's an audience and a market for it. To make the show at the level of quality that we think it deserves is a very labor-intensive and time-consuming process. And listener support allows us to put in the time and effort that is required. So if you want to help us grow Land Grab and make more of the show, the most helpful thing would be to chuck in a buck or two which you can do at landgrabpodcast.com slash donate. Again, that is landgrabpodcast.com, all one word, slash donate. If contributing to the show isn't an option for you, there are still plenty of ways that you can help us out by spreading the word about the show. Tell your friends, recommend it to every tourist you run into, and you can share our stuff on social media we're at Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. That sort of stuff really helps draw more eyes and ears to the show. It's been so nice to see the kind of response that the show has been getting. And again, we really want to thank everybody who has helped us so far. But for now, let's get back to the show.
3: Welcome back to Land Grab. Matt here. John. In this next part of the show, we're going to pick back up with Andrew Hammond in Missoula. Remember when we left him, Andrew had just got a job as a store clerk in town. But before we fully dive into that, it's worth talking a little bit about what exactly the mercantile business was in this era and why it was so important.
4: When we are dealing with the early period in Montana history, say the 1850s, 60s, and 70s, It will help you if you keep in mind that distance then was not like distance now. You know, you're accustomed as I'm accustomed to jet airplanes and to fast automobiles and so forth and so on. It's very difficult to transport yourself back to the 1860s, for instance, when we are just emerging from our dark ages, to understand what distance was. But if we don't, you, you miss an awful lot of of history, Up until the late 1870s, remember, for instance, that the terminal point of the Northern Pacific Railroad was Bismarck, North Dakota, for a long time. And that's a long way off. The Utah Northern Railroad was probing northward. But in the 18th, until the late 1870s, its terminal point was Ogden, Utah, a long, long way
1: off. In these frontier communities especially before the railroad, the mercantile or the general store was the center of the town's activity.
6: The general store and mercantilism, these mercantiles are sort of the commercial foundation for Montana and for a lot of these western settlements. Um, The gold keeps dying you know you get a gold strike and it pans out and then a gold strike and it it peters out and so the mining is just so up and down until you get into the industrial mining like in butte and it turns out that that, that's the general store that's that's really the economic center and engine for um especially western development but awesome montana
1: Acquiring material goods in these relatively remote outposts was extremely hard. So the first mercantiles were started by people like Cap Higgins and Frank Warden, who had the know-how and the just plain tenacity to bring in pack trains and that sort of thing.
4: The best way to get into Montana in the 1860s and 70s, even into the early 1880s, was via a steamboat from St. Louis to Fort Benton. A trip that took 35 days if you were lucky. But remember that this route into Montana was closed for nine months out of the year because you can't run a steamboat on ice and you can't run it in low water. The route by stage and by freight wagon was closed roughly between November 1st and May 1st. What in the devil do you do with the ore, the enormously rich ore you're pulling out of the mines? What in the devil do the merchants do? Where do they get their goods? How do they get their goods? What do they have to pay for their goods?
1: I always think about, like, Morgan Freeman's character in Shawshank Redemption.
4: I understand you're a man that knows how to get things. I'm known to locate certain things, from time to time.
1: The guys who knew how to get stuff for you made a killing in the mercantile business. The mercantiles became the place to go for pretty much anything you needed but couldn't build yourself. And it was also probably where you sold anything that you produced.
3: In the 1870s, Andrew Hammond was finding his way in this mercantile business. After first working for George White, his big break came when he got a job as a clerk for the Bonner and Welch mercantile. The store was started by E.L. Bonner, Richard Eddy, and D.J. Welch, but Bonner ran the show
6: bonner gets his you know comes over from from washington and bonner county and bonner's ferry idaho and he starts a ferry there and he gets his start by bringing in you know goods from walla Walla and the columbia and setting up a trading post so bonner you know his first one to come across and then he sets up uh stores in deer lodge and butte and then uh, once Hammond arrives, you realize he can pretty much turn the operations over to him. Hammond's like kind of detail-oriented micromanager. And Bonner started – Bonner originally was a clerk, all these, and all these guys were clerks in the east for other department stores. Um, mm-hmm. Bonner was a clerk at Lord & Taylor's in New York City. And so as soon as he got a chance, he went back east. And he would hang out in the East. He liked to hang out in DC and smoke cigars and hang out with all the the Montana politicians. And then Eddie was kind of relaxed. He, uh, as soon as he got some money, he was off hunting and fishing. And he was like, oh, Hammond's got the store. I'm gonna go hunting. And he'd go on hunting trips for weeks on end. Nobody would ever hear from him. And then he pretty quickly just cashed out, um, you know, early on and then moved to uh, Los Angeles when it was starting up, bought himself an orange grove and retired. <laughs> you know, he's like, ah, I'm out of
3: here. So these guys were happy to put Hammond in charge of the day-to-day operation of the store.
6: And then Yeah, Hammond was much younger and, again, very driven, um, very detail-oriented and I think he liked being the guy in charge, yeah, even yeah. if his name wasn't on the... In fact, that he wasn't really a full partner for quite a while, but Um, until the Eddie Hammond Company.
1: Shortly after Hammond arrived in 1873, an economic panic swept over the nation and hit Montana Territory. It stopped the nascent Northern Pacific Railroad in its tracks and crippled many other industries. But the Bonner mercantile was well-suited for the crisis. Missoula was located at the nexus point of Five Valleys, all rich in agricultural lands, timber, and minerals. Mine camps would spring up out of the ground and collapse just as quickly, and bad growing years would stunt crop yields. But the mercantile, by providing needed supplies to every industry, was relatively immune to the boom and bust cycles that decimated many other industries. The Bonner Merc got ahead through a system where they would set up camp stores, wherever a new claim materialized, hawking tools, tobacco, and whiskey from under a tented storefront before packing up and moving on to the next
6: camp. Yeah, I think that's something else that they brought over from New England is this whole idea, of the, I think they call it the wagon, W-A-A-G-A-N, not wagon. But, and it was the idea that you could just set up a shop basically on skids and, or, you know, or in a tent and you could serve a lumber camp that way. And then this, you know, that whole idea, you know, mining camp, you would just pop up a tent and start, start selling stuff right away. Um, you think about, you know, miners needed shovels, right? And picks and flour and whiskey and tobacco and all those things that were both essential and luxury items went for pretty high prices. And, you know, a guy with a team of mules could just, again, set up put up a pop-up store and then you know take it down and move it on to the next camp. And uh, Bonner figured that out pretty quick. And the thing that they needed was a distribution center. Like if there's all these mining camps popping up, Virginia City, Clear Creek, or Cedar Creek, rather, sorry. Um, and even up in the Kootenai, um, up into Canada, the energy, I mean, mining camps are popping up left and right, but if you can have a a central distribution center, an Amazon warehouse, you need your your distribution center. And so, Missoula, at the convergence of five valleys, seemed like an ideal place to sort of put that distribution center because you could go a lot of different directions and you could have you know, orchards in the bitter roots you could draw from. You could, you know, have ranches out in central Montana. You had the gold mines or um, silver things popping up. And so, you know, Missoula's existence really just is because it was just a, an Amazon distribution center that uh, Bonner and his partners set up. And then Hamming sort of fell into that pretty early on.
1: This is where we get to kind of a funny part of Hammond's life, his listless wayward twenties.
6: And I think he's again he's he's young, he's just trying to try different things. I mean, the life of a the life of a sales clerk, I mean, you know, getting dressed I mean, dressed up every day and standing behind a counter and and handing, you know, that's a you know, sort of classic general store where the merchandise isn't on display. You walk in and the sales clerk hands it, you know, reaches off the shelf and hands it to you and writes it down in a book. And you come in six months later and pay off your debts. Mm-hmm. Um, that w- probably wasn't that exciting to, you know, a, a 18, 20 year old guy, you know, it's like, let's, I think he just, you know, again, trying to see what else, what else he can dredge up. Mm-hmm.
1: Hammond left the Bonner Merck for a few years. He tried his hand at poetry, cattle ranching, and uh, even spent some time quite literally selling snake oil up and down the Bitterroot Valley.
5: Um, Let's back up then to your father, if you don't mind. Do you remember your father talking about those relatives, uh, the uh, McLeods and the Hammonds and...
2: Oh heavens! Yes, all my life uh-huh. uh, I've heard
5: uh, many stories about them.
2: Uh huh.
5: You, know? you, you did you ever you never knew Andrew Hammond? You probably were. Uh, I have you, met him. You you met Andrew Hammond? Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you remember but, anything about uh, him at all?
2: Well, uh, he was oh, a very energetic uh, mm-hmm. gentleman.
1: Uh, Notably. In an attempt to combat some rheumatism, quote-unquote, that would go on to cripple him for life, A.B. hooked himself up to a galvanic battery and induced shock therapy uh, into his own body over a regular period around this time. Throughout uh, the rest of his years, he would constantly be described as uh, an almost boundlessly energetic man and i wonder if that uh if that galvanic battery had anything to do with it he was also a chronically ill man for the rest of his days kind of gives me real like mr burns vibes from the simpsons just this kind of sickly conniving old
3: industrialist but eventually he came back into the fold and in 1876, he incorporated a new mercantile business with Bonner and Eddie as a full partner in the Eddy Hammond, and Company mercantile. The Eddie, Hammond, Co. grew throughout the region and competed with the bigger Higgins and Warden Company. Hammond, Eddy, Bonner, Higgins, and Warden became Missoula's first ruling class, working together and in competition to grow the town and their control over it. Bonner...
0: Higgins, uh, Eddie, Hammond,
1: and they had a warden. I call this group a cabal, these five fellas. That voice there is Ty Robinson. Ty was sort of a Merck history expert, and he started working there, in fact, as an in-house counsel all the way back in 1948. He's speaking here in an oral history interview with our very own Greg Gordon.
0: Those five originally really owned Missoula to start with, but
3: uh, as time went on, uh, Hammond became the leader of the group. Hammond was the doer. Within a year, AB and the Eddie Hammond Co. had grown to the point that they began constructing a new store building right at the corner of the relatively new Higgins Avenue and the Mullen Road, which would eventually be called Front Street.
1: That same year, in 1877, the fighting retreat of Chief Joseph's band of Nez Perce from northern Idaho through Montana was being sensationalized all over the newspapers of the territory. Panicked white residents of Missoula implored the army to construct Fort Missoula, and as the Nez Perce neared Montana, they even built their own improvised fort in Lolo Canyon and drafted a militia to staff it.
4: It came down through Lolo Pass, right south of town here. Fort Missoula had just been constructed that year, 1877, and it was in charge of a Captain C.C. Ron, R-A-W-N. Captain Ron, along with a bunch of intrepid volunteers from the city of Missoula, Marches up, he knows Joseph is coming down, he's had his scouts out. He marches up Lolo Canyon, he comes to a very narrow defile, he fells a lot of trees and builds a fort across the canyon, which obviously no one can get by. In the meantime, Missoula is fortifying itself from these dangerous Indians.
1: Downtown, at the heart of Missoula on Higgins and Front Street, A.B. Hammond and a few dozen other militia members and their families Hold up in the shell of the new Eddie Hammond Co. mercantile store that was being built. They
4: also strung a great iron chain across Higgins Avenue Bridge. Uh...
3: When the Nez Perce arrived, they simply snuck past the ill-prepared militia at Lolo Canyon and into the Bitterroot.
4: What happened is that as the soldiers and the volunteers crouched behind what came to be known as Fort Fizzle, after three or four days of palaver, a hundred warriors... Two hundred women and children, six or seven hundred horses passed silently in the night on either side of Captain Ron, and when he awoke in the morning, there they were, embarrassingly, behind him.
3: They broke through, sir. Without a fight? That's right, sir. They walked right over a mountain you'd think only animals could climb. Oh
2: my god.
4: Get a message forward to Fort Missoula and you tell Gibbon to get his pants in the saddle personally. Take every man he's got, every civilian he can find, and get Joseph now. Yes, sir. With those Indians loose in the Bitterroot Valley, anything can happen. A shot from either side could start a massacre.
3: When the Nez Perce encountered Charlo and the Bitterroot Salish, they offered them the chance to join their campaign. Determined to keep the peace, Charlo refused to join and ordered the Nez Perce not to attack any white settlers in the valley or else the Salish would attack them. Charlo even personally escorted some white families to safety at Fort Missoula.
4: Joseph and his entourage move south up the Bitterroot Valley, trading very peacefully with the people in the valley, causing no trouble at all. But he is now being pursued by Colonel John Gibbon, uh, he's also being pursued by General O.O. O. Howard of the Department of the Columbia. In other words, he's being pursued by the entire army of the Pacific Northwest. Forward!
0: Ho!
1: Chief Joseph and the Nez Perce were finally defeated in October of that year, and their surrender marked an official end to the period of the Indian Wars. But even as the army was moving out of Montana, the railroad was finally moving in.
0: Listen to the whinny of the Iron Horse, the whistle of a train in the night. This is the sound America made as she pushed a frontier into the Pacific. And this is the way she did it, with a red-hot firebox turning water to steam, and steam into power to drive wheel-over-steel on a dead run down the right-of-way to anywhere. In
3: 1881, the chief engineer for the Northern Pacific Railroad came to Missoula. The railroad was plotting its route through Montana, and he had a contract to provide lumber and supplies for the construction of the transcontinental line from Helena to Spokane. The railroad was seen as a conduit of progress, the pivotal step to the establishment of large scale industry in the territory. And every would-be industrialist wanted a piece of that action.
6: So the, the traditional sort of approach was to, what they were trying to do, was they couldn't build the entire railroad themselves and so what they would do is they'd put it out for bids section by section so there was a section let's say the section from Billings to Helena for example so they put it out for bids and local contractors um would you know bid on it and you know they they build it the sort of chief engineer comes over to Missouri. he's sort of on the vanguard of the railroad as he's moving across, and he's you know, trying to suss out who would be good people to build it.
1: Bonner and Hammond's rivals, Higgins and Warden,
6: had donated land to the railroad to
1: build a depot on the north side of town in the hope of securing the lucrative deal for themselves. But young A.B. Hammond stepped in and took the engineer for an afternoon on Flathead Lake.
6: And he, Hammond's like, sort of showing him around, like, okay, here's where the route, where the railway would go, right? It comes through Missoula, and you'd have to go up and over Everrow Hill, you know, over to Flathead Lake, and then sort of, you know, because you, you're not going over the Bitterroots, right? You got go to go uh, up and around to Sand Point.
1: It is unknown what happened that day on the lake.
6: The only thing that we really know is that they went up to Flathead Lake, and when they came back, that afternoon hammond had in his pocket an exclusive contract to build the entire length of railroad from helena to sandpoint it was the largest contract issued for the northern pacific over the longest span and the most difficult section so it's worth some pretty big money and hammond is a clerk he's well, he's, he's a he's running the show he's running the Eddie Hammond Company, but he's essentially a store clerk that gets the contract to build the entire, the biggest section of the North Pacific Railroad. It includes everything but the steel. These guys got to supply all the lumber. They do the grading. They're gonna, you know, basically do everything except lay the tracks. They're gonna supply all the workers with the tents and the food and the alcohol and the tobacco and the wood and everything. All the build all the trestles and su- railroad ties everything that you can imagine that it takes to build a railroad and this was the only exclusive contract learned Pacific issue and so it's kind of like the if the store manager of your local um albertson's gets a contract to build the space shuttle like it, it it's just sort of mind-blowing how this came about and there's we It's really not known how it happened, but probably Hammond was probably a pretty good talker.
1: It was a remarkable deal for Hammond to negotiate, not least because Hammond and Bonner had no timber operation to speak of, while Higgins and Warden and their partners owned the biggest timber operation and mill in the county.
6: And they were pissed Right, the the local lumber company doesn't get the contract. The store gets the contract to supply all the lumber.
1: The deal enraged Higgins and spawned a generations-long feud between the families that quite literally shaped Missoula. A year after the deal, Hammond instituted a hostile takeover of the First National Bank of Missoula, which Higgins had started and much more than a community bank. After he took over, the First National became the financial arm for Hammond's whole operation, the place where they funneled the biggest amounts of capital and financed many of their other business endeavors. And throughout the rest of the show, anytime you hear about the First National Bank, just know that that's what it was.
6: And that's, you know, I calculated out 3,000 cross ties per every mile. Um, It's just an immense amount of of lumber to build all those bridges. I mean, they build the world's largest timbered structure cross to cross on the trestle for Evero Hill. Um, You know, all the bridges, they have to cross the Clark Fork River back and forth, getting all the way to Sandpoint. Um, they're, you know, blasting the rock out of, uh, the cabinet, uh, gorge. All of that work came from the, the Eddie Hammond company, a general store. Um, and that's what sort of catapults them into becoming the Missoula mercantile company, the Montana improvement company, the big Blackfoot milling company, and, you know, puts them, um, Eddie Hammond and Bonner, basically on the top tier of Montana capitalists. Um, At one point, that enterprise, and we'll call it the the Merck for for short, uh, they have their hands in everything. Um, They become the single largest taxpayer in Western Montana outside the lumber company, the largest employer in Western Montana. I mean, they're on par with the Anaconda company over in Butte in terms of, of their financial wherewithal, and it all stems from this, this Northern Pacific Railroad contract.
3: In order to scale up to the size required to fill the contract, Hammond brought out scores of New Brunswick lumbermen to work the camps and put his relatives in managerial positions overseeing the growing operation. This included his nephew, another key figure in our story, one Charles Herbert C.H. McLeod.
6: You know, he brings in all these people from New Brunswick um, after he moves to Montana, you know, the McLeods and the Sears and the um, uh, Beckwiths. And a lot of them are for the Merchant for the Missoula Mercantile Company, but a lot of them come in to work as tie cutters on the railroad. So you get this large influence of French speaking so we have the the Metis, right? The, the French uh, and Blackfeet uh, and Cree people that are in already in Montana, but then you bring in these the French New Brunswick people, um, and they're the loggers, the ones actually going out and doing the work, whereas the the English speaking people from New Brunswick are the ones that are um, sort
3: of running the show. Hammond, Eddie, and Bonner also joined with officials from the Northern Pacific Railroad, Territorial Governor Samuel T. Hauser, and Anaconda Company founder Marcus Daly to form the Montana Improvement Company, a new corporation that served as the umbrella organization for their business activity.
6: The intention was to form a company to build the railroad, right? So they kind of spun out, so the, Monta- the Eddie Hammond Company gets the contract And then, of course, they need capital, right? Because they've got this contract and they need to hire a bunch of people to grade the road and to, you know, cut the lumber and all these things. They need to build mills, they need to buy supplies. And so in order to fulfill the Northern Pacific contract, they form this improvement company. And um, yeah, and and this is the time where the evolution of like the corporate model hasn't really taken off yet. And so what most larger companies like this are are really partnerships. And so um, they need to bring in as much capital as they can. So you've got five or six guys. So they're trying to get as much capital as they can. And the idea was this improvement company would then do build the railroad.
1: To to introduce you to some of those names you heard a little bit more fully, the Northern Pacific Railroad owned 51% of the company, although none of the parties ever admitted this. Samuel T. Hauser uh, was one of the original gold miners in Helena who struck it rich, and he got in really early with the railroad building branch lines throughout Montana. Marcus Daly, as we discussed, is the founder of a little company called the Anaconda Copper Mining Company, which, at the point of this deal, was in the midst of constructing a huge mining and smelting operation in Butte and in Anaconda. And the Anaconda Company will grow to dominate economic and political life in Montana for much of the 20th century.
4: Montana's largest city is Butte, the copper metropolis of America.
0: The city is built over one of the richest mineral deposits in the world, Beneath the city are more than 2,000 miles of tunnels cut through enough copper to satisfy
4: the needs of our nation for decades. In Butte is a statue erected to the memory of Marcus Daly, one-time master of the state's copper industry.
1: Daily was backed by global industrial kingpins in San Francisco, James Ben Ali Hagan, and a little guy named George Hurst. And they saw the whole Anaconda operation as a way to bring the whole copper production process under one corporate umbrella in Montana.
4: In the spring of 1882... Daly invited Hagen and Hurst to come to Butte. Daly took them through the mine. It was down about 700 feet. Took about an hour and a half, and then he took them up and under the gallows hoist, he sat them down and he then put forth his plan. He said that they were sitting on a huge deposit of copper, that the whole hill was copper, and He proposed a tremendous expansion, new shafts, entirely new hoisting machinery. But he proposed far, far more than that. He proposed that, among other things, they build the world's largest smelter. It could not be built at Butte because the water was insufficient. So they would have to build it elsewhere. He proposed that since they would could not put the smelter at Butte. Wherever they put it, they would have to build a new city, a smelter city. He proposed, therefore, that they would have to build a railroad from Butte to the new smelter city, wherever it was going to be. Now, take and use a little imagination. These three men are sitting on a hill, looking out over what is essentially a wilderness, a spiny, forlorn, hot, cold, miserable land with a grub heap of a little town beneath their feet. And this man is proposing this kind of a thing to James Van Hagen and George Hurst? Yes, he was. Hurst was enormously dubious, and I don't blame him. He wanted to know where the fuel for such an immense smelter would come from. Good question. Daly said, well, we got all kinds of wood here in western Montana, all kinds of trees. Hagen had not said a word. Daly had been talking and Hurst had been discussing this thing with them for about two hours. Finally, at the end of about two hours, Hagen turned to Hurst and said, George, I think we had better go along with Mr. Daly. And so the Anaconda Copper Mining Company was born. Here begins the real story of heavy mining in Montana, and as a consequence, here begins the real story of Montana's economic growth, including lumber, agriculture, labor, and small businesses. Here begins the story of events that extend their influence far, far into the 20th century. Here, in effect, begins the real political history of Montana because nothing political makes any sense at all. Unless you start with the Anaconda Copper Mining Company.
1: But among all these different parties, Hammond was running the show, and everyone else was largely just providing capital for a needed service. With the incorporation of the Montana Improvement Company, Hammond and his partners firmly entwined themselves with the two dominant industries. And conduits of eastern capital in the territory, the railroad and the Anaconda Company. The reason the Montana Improvement Company was formed was because the Northern Pacific Railroad and the Anaconda Smelter were two massive undertakings, and they required access to an insane amount of lumber at an insanely cheap price in order to be economical.
4: If you're a railroad, you're building a railroad, it takes 3,000 ties per mile of track. How are you going to build a railroad if you can't cut down trees? How are you going to build trestles? They were all made out of wood. How are you going to build station houses? How are you going to do anything? How are you going to put sidewalks in Missoula? Because the sidewalks in Missoula then, for instance, were all made out of wood. How do you build buildings? How do you make shingles? How do you do anything? How do you get mine timbers above all? And how do you stoke the fires of the great smelter In Is this an exaggeration? I don't think so. As a matter of fact, I think it's an understatement.
1: And that required a really high level of organized price fixing and rate cutting, and essentially the creation of a timber monopoly in the Montana Territory. The railroad and Daly provided the capital, and Hammond and his partners provided the timber. Each party relied on the other parties for materials or capital, So it was a very reliant, co-reliant organization. The Montana Improvement Company and Hammond as the lumber producer within that organization is pivotal in making the Anaconda Copper Company and the Northern Pacific Railroad feasible
3: on the scale that they were trying to attain. The Improvement Company was then granted a new 20-year contract to provide all the timber and build more than 900 miles of railroad from Miles City to the Dalles, Oregon. An astonishing scale of business for a company that had only existed for a year.
1: To give you an idea of how this kind of uh, glad-handing, sweetheart-deal type thing worked, uh, when they signed their 20-year contract, the Northern Pacific gave the Montana Improvement Company exclusive right to remove all sellable timber from the railroad grant lands between the eastern end of hellgate canyon and sandpoint idaho the railroad also agreed to withdraw these lands from sale as well as build sidings for the improvement company at each of its mills and guarantee low freight rates in return for railroad ties and bridge timbers at a minimal price Both companies also resolved to keep trespassers on government timberlands from cutting any more. So, essentially, a priced-fixed monopoly uh, in intention and in effect.
4: What was the Montana Improvement Company? It was incorporated by Andrew B. Hammond, who was the boss, by R.A. Eddy, Eddy Avenue, E.L. Bonner, Bonner Park, Bonner, and Marcus Daly. Obviously, to cut and merchandise timber, and obviously in full knowledge that what they were doing was illegal.
1: But that's going to do it, for the most part, for Chapter 2 here. Really quickly, I'd like to just go back over and summarize what we've gone through, because we've seen a lot, a lot of dense, dense stuff in this episode. But uh, to summarize, in this episode... We've seen how the federal government changed its policy toward indigenous relations, phasing out the armed conflict of the Indian Wars with the social, religious, and economic conflict of assimilation. And we've seen how those policy changes had dire consequences for the Nez Perce and the Bitterroot Salish when they showed any kind of resistance. We also saw Andrew B. Hammond move up the ranks of the mercantile business before exploding into the upper echelon of capitalists in the territory with the big deal to build a railroad in 1881. The railroad deal and the formation of the Montana Improvement Company is arguably the most important business deal in Montana history. It was pivotal to the establishment of the Northern Pacific Railroad and the Anaconda Copper Company in the state, and it put Hammond's fingerprints right at the foundations of two of Western Montana's key institutions and corporate overlords. The deal also made Hammond into the uncontested king of Missoula and shot him into the next level of regional tycoons. In the next chapter, we're going to take a deep look at the actual operation of the Montana Improvement Company as they construct a massive and illegal timber monopoly in Montana in order to meet the demands of their huge contracts. A monopoly that will completely corrupt the territory's political system and draw the full ire of the federal government when a new administration is inaugurated. And we'll see the Improvement Company move into the Bitteret and begin, in earnest, an effort to force out Charlotte and the last remaining Salish people in the valley.
4: Depredations on the public domain are universal, flagrant, and limitless. For instance, the Montana Improvement Company, a corporation stock for $2 million, in which the Northern Pacific Railroad is reputed to be the principal owner, was formed in 1883 for the purpose of monopolizing timber traffic traffic in Montana and Idaho, and under contract with the railroad company running for 20 years has exploited the timber from unsurveyed public lands great distances along the line of said road, shipping the product of joint trespass and controlling the general market. So these people are violating laws all over the place. And Lamar gave Sparks the green light to institute lawsuits, both civil but above all criminal, on the incorporators of the Montana Improvement Company.
1: Thanks so much for listening to the second chapter of Land Grab season 1. Land Grab is written and produced by me, John Hooks, along with Matt Newman and Rory Murphy over at The Mint. Please make sure to subscribe to the show wherever you're listening so you don't miss an episode. If you like the show, please do rate and review us on whatever platform you're listening on. It really does get more eyes and ears on the show. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at LandGrabPod. A reminder that we are a donor-supported show, so if you would like to hear more, if you would like to know more about these things, if you want more land grab, please, please do consider making a contribution on the website.